It started with three reviews of past five stock samplers, five stocks for America, five stocks that passed the snap test, five stocks four years later celebrating the 2018 World Cup. Spoiler alert, all three of those samplers are beating the market with those 15 stocks together, averaging beating the market by more than 30 percentage points. So eat your hearts out, Bogleheads. Well, from stocks, we went to the National Football League in week two. We learned from Frank Reich, one of the great coaches in sports today, who generously and oh so foolishly shared his amazing life story and lessons, including the three key moments that make him the foolish investor he is today. And then from stock picking and life lessons, we transitioned in week three to venture capital investing. And I had my pal Olin Douglas on to demystify VC investing for you and convey even more lessons that will help out all of my fellow rule breakers. And so now, here we are. It's the final week of July, and therefore, it is your mailbag. And based on the feedback this month, it seems to me in particular, you'd like to get even smarter about venture capital investing in particular. So let's do it, only on this week's Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you with me this week. Thank you for making some extra time. I feel like we took up a lot of your time this particular month because two of my longest podcasts in Rule Breaker Investing history occurred this month. In fact, they were the previous two podcasts. I was enjoying Frank Reich so much that I just kept going and let it run long. And I hope it didn't feel long to you. Uh, sure, sure didn't feel long to me. And of course, my longtime producer, Rick Engdahl, he's the one with the hatchet. So if he feels like it's too long, stuff starts to disappear. And I think Rick left almost all of that in. So it was a delight to learn so much from Frank Reich. I'll be sharing some of the feedback I got with you very shortly. But then last week, we also went long, an hour and a half on venture capital investing. And as it turns out, we couldn't possibly cover all of the corners or angles that we'd want to and I got a bunch of questions back. So Olin Douglas is going to rejoin me this week, and we're going to answer some of your really thoughtful questions about this form of investing. And that'll be a big part of this week's mailbag. Now, before I get started with some hot takes from Twitter, I want to mention a few things. I do this from time to time, how to write something to get you on the mailbag. Although actually, I'm going to be looking at the other side of the coin and just reminding some of my longtime listeners a few of the, what I would call, ground rules around the mailbag. So I received, and these are always flattering, a number of basically applications. I would describe these as people who would like a job at either the Motley Fool or the Motley Fool Foundation. And these are lovely notes and very flattering, but I'm not going to share that probably on the mailbag. And those are better addressed to our hiring department. And you can go to careers.fool.com to see any of our openings. And often there's a great story that's being told along with that application that kind of sounds like it could be a mailbag, but really, that is much better directed to our hiring team here at The Motley Fool. Another example of notes that don't make it onto the mailbag, amazing but too long notes. And you may know who you are this week, Bradley Larson. That was an amazing note, but it's just too long for me to share within this format. So yes, I love hearing your stories, whoever you are, your investing stories, your business and life stories, how you connect with The Motley Fool. Those will always be of enduring interest, not just to me, I think, but to many people listening. But if it takes four or five pages to write out, chances are it's not going to make the mailbag. And it kind of hurts because a lot of effort was put into such a long note. And yet, along with Mark Twain, 
uh, sometimes you have to spend extra time to make it shorter. And that is advisable if you want to appear on the mailbag. And then one more example of something that's just not going to quite make the mailbag. We got a great note in the past month from somebody who is giving a big gift to his high school, the high school he graduated from decades ago. And it's in order to start an investment club. But the request was basically how he should structure that to make it work best for his high school. Now, that is a really lovely question, but that's not something that really fits on the mailbag here. So especially if you're designing something on your own or it's part of your wills and estates, probably that doesn't quite fit the rule breaker investing mailbag. Again, I appreciate all the notes and I read them all, but I can't feature so many of them. The ones I do feature usually fit more with some form of storytelling or questions of broad interest where a lot of people listening will be sitting on the edge of their seats wondering what the answer is to that question. So you all know this. It takes you to make this mailbag happen. So I want to thank each of you for more than 35 pages of notes this past month, always making my job hard to figure out what we should feature on the Rule Breaker Investing mailbag. All right, let's go to some hot takes from Twitter. A lot of these reacting in particular to Frank Reich. I want to read several of these. Jay Shaw, you said, I listened to every single Rule Breaker Investing podcast by at David G. Fool, but this one in particular is so good. I'm a huge fan of Frank Reich from his time with the Eagles. This podcast will teach you not only about good investing, but also about good life lessons. Jummy at Jummy underscore bear with a three. That's Leet speak. Well done, Jummy. What may seem a great spontaneity comes from discipline and practice. Great new perspective. Many more life lessons learned this week from the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. Thank you, Frank. And thank you, David and Rick for another great episode. Jason Moore at Jiminy Jillikers. This is one of my favorite episodes of the year. The level of accomplishment Coach Reich has achieved across so many platforms is incredible. Mix that in with a modest upbringing and a humble attitude towards success. Well, every corner of this podcast has a new lesson to learn. And that's just how it felt to me as well. Thank you, Jason. And finally, Savior of Humanity, Adam Nelson writes in, punning, smarter, happier, Riker with a smiley. Great interview. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Adam says, I will be drafting Carson Wentz in my fantasy football league, betting on good management to help him reach new highs. Thanks again. Well, thank you, Adam. And thank you all for the outpouring of support and interest that came from our interview with Frank Reich. Now, that wasn't all that Twitter was full of. We did get a number of nice notes about my friend Olin Douglas's appearance last week. One representative one from Nirish Kapoor at Cricket99238 on Twitter at David G. Fool. Absolutely amazing episode on the insights into the workings of venture capitalists. Greatly enjoyed the anecdotes and wisdom shared on the podcast. Thanks for putting this little gem together. Well, I couldn't have put that little gem together if I didn't have the head of Motley Fool Ventures as my sidekick. And actually, not my sidekick, really the Swami at whose feet we were all sitting. And speaking of Swami, why not have Olin Douglas back again? Because Olin, I got a lot of great reactions and some more questions and some really good questions, a motley variety. And I thought you and I should kick it around some this week. Very good, David. I am very happy to be back. And can I be your side Swami? <laughs> <laughs> Let's go with that. I'm pretty sure side Swami, that sounds great to me, Olin. In fact, I'm thinking maybe that phrase hasn't been used very much in all of history. And I just, why not? I just Googled side Swami and the top hit is for Albert Einstein. And it says, Albert Einstein, this is from an Amazon book, his human side, colon, Swami, and then it goes on from there. So side Swami 
Yes, those words occur together, but they weren't even intended to be together. They're, they're in an Albert Einstein book title. All right, Owen, well, welcome back. And in fact, I have queued up the first four Rule Breaker Investing mailbag items for you this week, sir. So you're going to do some extra work. I bet you weren't planning on this when we spent 90 minutes last week talking about all this. You probably <laughs> thought you'd said enough. <laughs> no, this is going to be fun, David. I'm looking forward to the uh, to the questions. And I am as well. And thank you. And so the first one comes from Eugene Ng. He's writing in from Singapore. Multiple mailbag appearances for Eugene. Really nice note. Eugene, let me, let's go through it here. Hi, David. Hello again. I am Eugene Ng from Singapore, and it was truly insightful and refreshing to have Olin Douglas on your latest RBI podcast to talk about venture capital. In addition to being a longtime fool and a big fan of you, the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast, which I listen to every week without fail, and The Motley Fool, I recently started angel and early stage investing in private startups as well over the last year. Got a couple of questions for Olin, if you'd be willing to invite him back in less than seven years, of course, uh, <laughs> making a joke about what we said last week. Thank you, Eugene. And Olin, yes, you're back seven days later. We so, crushed uh, it, David. We crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> so he has three questions. And let's take them one at a time, Olin. So here's the first one. What were the reasons and considerations for Motley Fool Ventures choosing and specializing in Series A? Eugene wonders, why not earlier? Why not like seed investing or pre-seed? Or why not later stages like bigger money, BC, near IPO? So let me pause it there. He's got a little bit more there. But what was your reasoning for Series A, Olin? And David, I'll first start by just for those listeners who aren't uh, uh, engrossed in the venture capital world, those those letters are seed and Series A are basically the stages of a company, and they tend to signify, even though the dot, even though the numbers may move around, they tend to signify a certain stage of development for a company. And that blends right into his answer. We picked Series A because that's usually the point where um, companies and startups are tending to um, uh, be ready to really professionalize their operations. They need to increase their staff. They need to care about things like accounting and, and you know, in, in finance and some of the operational infrastructure that you really need to grow a successful business. And uh, for us, and this is um, something that everyone should think about, we decided that this was where we thought we could add the most value as an mm. investor. As someone who is a, has been a CFO for a long time, it's easy for me to help uh, startups with some of those uh, basic kind of finance issues that they run into when they're starting their company. So we, mm. we chose this stage because, it number one, it aligned with where we think our expertise is and where we can get the maximum value from the help that we can provide. Uh, but also, tactically speaking, the Series A is a little bit of a tricky in investing period because you have the person with the great idea, they've bought the, um, they've created a product, they're ready, they've sold it to a few people, and now they need to go outside of their friends and family, outside of their network. They need a, you know, mm. a professional sales team. They need this, this infrastructure in being operators is what type of VC that we are. Um, we saw that gap and where some people shy away from it, we thought that we could come in there and fill that gap really nicely. That makes a lot of sense, Olin. And I'll, I'll tell you, we've heard people use this phrase before, I know. It's about to get real. 
Well, uh, that's that's like how I think about seed round funding. But when you're Series A, it's now real. Is that yes. fair, Olin? And that is very fair. That's it's when it's now you, real. It's now real. And sometimes you know we can help companies get ready for that if we go a little bit early. But yes, investors are going to come in. They're going to want to see your deal room. You're no longer having uh, you know coffee with someone and you have a conversation and they want to invest. No, you got to go and see the investment committee and you have to have your pitch book and pitch deck. One more numbers question for you here, Olin. And I know this is all a little bit relative, so we're not going to hold you to this. But if I'm an entrepreneur listening right now, dreaming that one day I might make Series A and have Motley Fool Ventures invest alongside me, and we're going to dream about that with you, dear listener, as well. But if that's if that's me, what is the typical revenue level that of the top line that I'm probably going to need to be hitting at a minimum to expect Series A interest? Yeah. And it used to be uh, for a while there that $1 million in annualized uh, revenue is uh, the minimum. And now, you see, maybe the one to three range is what people are looking at. And I tell you that what's funny is me being an accountant, um, I never knew there were so many definitions of revenue until I went into <laughs> venture capital. Um, I've, I've never felt older. I feel like I'm running around Kids, that's not revenue. Get off of my revenue. <laughs> that's not revenue. <laughs> Can you give me just like an, an example? You don't have to name names here, but I'm still naive enough to think that revenue is revenue. That would be you sold me something at your lemonade stand. I paid you three bucks for a cup. You took three bucks in revenues. What are other forms of revenue? First of all, let me say, David, I love lemonade. So this is, <laughs> <laughs> this is an exciting question. But uh Let's say someone, an entrepreneur, sells $30 of lemonade in one weekend. Nice. Hey, that's very nice. Yes, it's great. Very refreshing. Uh, they may uh, then say that they have annualized revenue of $1,500. Ah, they're gonna every project. weekend in their <laughs> minds, weekend. they're going to sell $30 of lemonade. Winter, spring, summer, fall. <laughs> or, <laughs> yeah, they may do that. Or uh, is they may... Have uh, someone who tells them that they're going to come and buy uh, lemonade mm. this weekend and next weekend, and so hey, I have sixty dollars of revenue because someone promised me they were coming next weekend. <laughs> right. So big time accounts receivable being counted on the top line as if it's just locked down, ironclad money, money, cash, money. Yes, exactly. All right. And so, All right. right. But back to the original question: when you think about the Series A, people are looking for you to have. Uh, annualized recurring revenue, which is basically your last quarter times mm -hmm. four, that number is somewhere between at least a million, sometimes that maybe even three million. And they're expecting you to be growing close to 100% a year, if not more. Okay, good. Uh, and so that's the floor. Yeah. <laughs> and that's that's really great to be reminded of so that anybody listening right now who's hoping to get to that stage understands really where they need to be to garner serious looks from serious uh, Series A funds. Well, thank you for that, Olin. Now, Eugene has a second question of his three. The second one is for individual angel investors, for example, like himself, or I'm sure many others listening. What are your thoughts around investing via syndicates or just direct into startups? So I take Eugene to be asking, basically, should I operate as a lone wolf here and just invest directly or should I be pooling my money with other so-called angels and be a syndicate? Thoughts? Yeah, there are lots of uh, angel groups where people come together to look at investments and then invest together. 
I think that like individual public company investing, sometimes it's better, especially if you're starting to do it together, uh, to share learnings, uh, to, to get exposure, to accelerate your learnings, uh, the camaraderie, to increase your deal flow, because the more people that are out there seeing deals, the more they can come together. Mm. And the other thing that people do not think about that is a pro for a syndicate is that uh, the amount of money you invest matters. And after you take your $30 from the lemonade stand and you try <laughs> to invest in a company, you're not going to get as much attention as you would if you and 10 of your lemonade friends make a ah. lemonade syndicate and come in with $300. Okay. Then you can get a cookie with your lemonade. So, and, and actually, I'm glad you mentioned that because that does, in fact, connect with Eugene's final question, which is about deal flow, a, a phrase you just used. I, in layman's terms, we're just talking about how many different companies a potential angel investor or venture capital fund gets to come across. How many deals do they get looks at? And presumably, more flow is better, especially you know anything more than a drip, drip, drip. I can imagine sometimes the flow could be too much or too high, and you have to start dialing your filters in a little bit. But the question Eugene asked basically is, because it's different from public market investing, because the only investments you can make are the deals that you see, any tips on building up deal flow for the for the venture capitalists out there? Uh, great, great question, David. And Eugene is actually worse than you said, because you have to find a deal. Um, first of all, you have to decide that you like it, as you said, and then you have to be invited to invest. Mm. <laughs> and then, um, depending on where you are, you then negotiate the terms of it because there is no posted prices and there's a kind of a, an ask sometimes. Um, and then once you go through all that, you invest. So there are quite a few steps um, that make it difficult. And deal flow is the idea of you're going out and meeting founders and investors uh, that you may potentially like so that you can have a chance to talk to them about <laughs> the likelihood of investing in their company at that infrequent time that they invest, which is only once or twice a year. Yeah. And <laughs> boy, know. is that ever different from the public markets? Because I never have to ask Google or the trade desk or Lululemon permission for me to buy its stock. I don't have to ask my broker, could I buy that? But it's totally different for this form of investing. Yes, and and and, so, and I guess uh, I would say that uh, uh, Tim Cook never came to you and said, "Hey, David, I'm just wondering how come you don't call me anymore? Like, ah. why did you why did you sell my stock? You know, right, right. That, there's, <laughs> a, there's a human dynamic here that's completely missing from the public markets. Yes, and it's a, it's an it's it's very much a relationship business, but getting attached to the network, uh, you know, having being in a syndicate or an angel network helps, but just attending venture capital ecosystems, events, especially at the earlier stages is to see the pre-seed, as they say, when you have ideas and products. Um, there are opportunities for individuals um, who are relatively, who are not known in the industry, per se, mm -hmm. to, to find great entrepreneurs that they, that they want to back. All right. Well, thank you for that, Olin. Yeah, it does strike me that your reputation and being a, a good person, being somebody who has a reputation for helping out, 
the entrepreneurs that you're investing in. These kinds of things stand up and count for a lot more, I would assume, in that world than we're used to as just mom and pop individual investors in public market companies. So it's the next question, why in the world are you doing this, Olin? <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely not. But let me thank Eugene for his questions. He concludes, thank you once again, David, for being the mentor that I've had for the past seven years, but you never knew. For teaching me weekly about life and investing every week, sharing your wisdom and humor endlessly with us all. Well, that's very kind of you, Eugene. You're reminding me this is the seventh year of this podcast. That's right. With July of 2021, we've concluded our sixth full year. And here we are in the seventh year of the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. A delight to have you tuning in, Eugene. Olin, let's move on to Rule Breaker mailbag item number two this month. This one's from Neeraj Kapoor, whose tweet I earlier read out in praise of your appearance last week. And this was his question for you, Olin. He said, Hi, David. Greatly enjoyed the discussion with Olin. As I am, says Neeraj, in the biotech industry, I was just wondering, how does the full venture capital fund value early stage biotechs? And what kind of percent stake would you be comfortable taking in a new biotech with a revolutionary idea, but no data? Neeraj says, look forward to your insights. I think I know where this one's headed because I know (laughs) a thing or two about Molly Full Ventures. Olin, what is your answer right off the top for Neeraj here? Uh, yeah, our preferred stake in biotechs is zero. <laughs> and <laughs> Largely I, and- because that whole industry seems insane to me. <laughs> I <laughs> so- tend to ball up in a corner and, and hide under a blanket until they go away. <laughs> That's how I handle biotech investors. <laughs> well, I, I love the answer and it's authentic. And you said your preferred is zero. And I think, in fact, our de facto investment in biotech so far, Motley Fool Ventures, is zero, Olin, following right through with what you said. Yeah. It is a reminder to me that we don't all have to feel like we need to know something about everything. We truly can say that's in, as Warren Buffett has sometimes said, the too hard to figure out pile, or maybe that's Charlie Munger. But there, there are whole aspects of of the world of technology that can just be too hard to determine, or just not. We're just not confident enough. It's not in our wheelhouse. Olin, I suppose if you'd come to us instead of coming from the industry of finance, where you did come to us from, if you'd come from biotechnology, I'm sure we'd probably have a little bit more of a slant there. Is there Series A biotech investing at the same kinds of levels, or does it need to be a bigger deal because they need to raise so much money to actually get FDA approval? How does that work? Yeah, and, and um, from what I, I know, and, and obviously you know, outside of my center of my zone of confidence, but yes, they are Series A biotechs, and sometimes they go public. It's 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 it's, it's, yep. it's an entirely different world. And what I would say to Niraj for biotech investing and a little more seriousness. A lot of investing, whether it's rule breaker investing or investing in biotechs or you know value investing, it's about finding your comfort level and understanding your expertise. Biotech investing, from what I'm saying, is tends to be very binary. So that would imply, without any knowledge of biotech at all, just understanding the numbers and math. If you're doing investing into an area that has lots of binary outcomes, mm. then you need to take more bets and probably you know, more frequent and smaller bets to spread to spread your, your risk across um, multiple companies. That makes a lot of sense, Olin. And, you know, it is kind of an all or nothing thing. When you say binary, it's kind of all or nothing. And because most companies that get a Series A probably don't end up hitting it big, I think it's fair to say the majority won't. That's a lot of nothings. And so you're right, you have to take a volume approach and we're just, we're just not going to do that with this fund. 
All right, let's move on to, I like this one from Carl Swetnick. Uh, Hello, David and Owen. This is Rule Breaker Mailbag, item number three. I want to start by saying I am a dyed-in-the-wool fool. Well, glad to know that, Carl. Thank you, Carl, with a K, by the way, for those keeping score at home. So I'm not questioning the benefits of investing in the stock market. I'm in for the long term. I do wonder, however, do either of you think the amount of venture capital available today limits opportunity for investors in public companies. So Carl gives some examples. Recent IPOs like Roblox or Unity, Airbnb. These are the types of companies, Carl says, that Rule Breaker Investing could have scored 100 baggers on, except they came public at valuations in the tens and even sometimes near $100 billion ranges. It seems to me an opportunity to buy world-changing businesses like Amazon or Netflix at small market capitalizations is not possible anymore for those of us who aren't well-heeled enough to invest in seed rounds. Thanks for everything and full on. Olin, what's your take? Carl, a uh, great question. And you are correct. Companies are staying private longer. Um, one of the things to keep in mind is that these great public companies um, weren't necessarily great private companies. I think the most common story you hear from public company investors of of these large, fantastic companies is a story of when they could not give away shares of their company (laughs) when they were small and they had to talk to a hundred people before they could have someone to invest in in times when they would have taken money from anyone who would have listened to them. Um, And so what what it points to is that the journey starts early. There are more and more opportunities for people to invest in private companies when they're early. Um, You won't know what's going to be the next Roblox. That's kind of part of the uh, challenge. You betcha. But but it is getting easier to invest in uh, early stage companies and private. There's some crowdfunding sites that are... um, that have been around for a while. There's a, a group called AngelList. We Motley Pool Ventures has invested in a company called Republic, which does uh, equity crowdfunding. And there are other options out there, but more and more opportunities are opening up for people to invest in private companies um, early. Well, and I appreciate that answer, Olin, and, and I, I agree with it. Um, there are more opportunities than ever before. I, I want to point out to Carl and really all of us that while it is true, and somewhat to my frustration, that great companies these days, I'm even going to say the Motley Fool's an example of this, stay private indefinitely in some cases or for very long periods of time. And it means that we as rule breaker investors don't get a shot at owning Airbnb when we first rented on Airbnb and thought, this is a great idea. I wonder if I could buy the stock. Those opportunities in many cases have been kind of taken away by the venture capital industry in a way that I don't really like it much for. But I would also like to point this out, that the almost unbounded size of the market caps that these companies can still grow into is still inspiring to me. For example, with Airbnb, I think that could be a trillion-dollar company one day. That would be a ten ba- more than a 10-bagger from where it came public. So just because the numbers are bigger as companies often come public these days, don't forget the numbers get even bigger than that as we go forward. I remember a time where People thought there could never be a company with a trillion-dollar market cap. Then Apple did it first. Then Apple became a $2 trillion market cap just a few years after that. So I think it's worth remembering that all of this is kind of relative. And you can definitely still get in early, 
But to close on this one, Olin, Carl's right. You do need to be an accredited investor or a little bit better healed often to get into these kinds of deals. Although, pointing out Republic and some other examples, I feel like that's also in the process of being democratized. So we'll continue watching and and hoping for all of us. Well, let's go to the final one. This one comes from Amit Samani. Amit is writing in from Bangalore, India. He is the managing partner of Prime Venture Partners. And here is Rule Breaker Mailbag item number four. Hi, David. I'm a practicing early stage venture capitalist myself. And we are now investing in our third fund. I've also been a public market investor and a big fan of the Rule Breaker philosophy for longer than I've been a VC, writes Amit. So I found the podcast with Olin quite interesting since I often reflect on this myself. I have found myself applying lessons learned from public market investing to private markets and vice versa. I wanted to share a few examples. And Olin, I'll just read these out and then pick your favorite or anything you like here and give us some wisdom. Here are some of Amit's examples. When one is investing at the seed or Series A stage, you develop a lot of intuition for evaluating the founding teams and of the total addressable market. Both come in quite handy when evaluating public market investments as well. Again, looking that founding team in the eye, even if, if it's through your internet camera, <laughs> and, and the total addressable market, which is something we probably haven't talked that much about in these two weeks we've shared together, Olin. On the other hand, Amit says, portfolio construction in public markets can easily inform your private market startup investing. Three of my favorite tenets, that would be me, David, of Rule Breaker Investing, which are, he lists, letting your winners run high and add up, don't double down and aim for a 60% win rate, aim for it anyway, apply, says Amit, as is to VC portfolio construction. A few dominant winners define most venture capital fund returns. This is a rich topic. I hope you can explore this more in future podcasts. Well, here we are doing it right here in this one. And Amit concludes with this lovely line, Olin. He says, I wish one or more of your venture portfolio companies someday become a rule breaker Motley Fool recommendation. Well, th- thank you again, Ahmed Samani, for writing in. Olin, thoughts back. The, first of all, that that final thought is an awesome one, and I'd love to kind of come back to that. It's a it's a dream of mine too, Ahmed. Uh, you mentioned uh, a lot of things there. One of the things I will talk about is when you talked about the addressable market in in the people. And what I tell. Uh, people sometimes is I really try to simplify venture capital for myself to make sure that I can kind of understand. And it's ultimately about three things, people, the business model, and um, the the market opportunity. So people, business, and market. Different VCs uh, will weigh them differently. And I found this largely along what their areas of expertise are and their experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for, yes, that's one of the things that we have translated from the Motley Fool uh, philosophy is we do focus on people. Um, You know, we, we want to, we want to back great uh, entrepreneurs trying to do great things. Um, We don't necessarily measure people in the same ways that, that, that others uh, do. Um, We note what school you went to, but we don't really, care is probably so that we can talk sports you know <laughs> the main reason we're asking. <laughs> um, you know but what what we found is that we just want to in, invest in people who can demonstrate a history of 
of of doing great things. Yeah, in the history of accomplishments. Well, and I don't want to put words into your mouth on this one, Olin, but I think you put it to me something like this uh, a while back. You said, I th- "I'm going to make this phrase up." It's it, well, let's call it your Saturday afternoon call. It's the Saturday afternoon test. It's your phone rings these days. We can look at our smartphone and see who's calling. And you want to feel like you're excited and happy and looking forward to talking to that young person that we've invested in because you truly enjoy them and you're looking forward to that Saturday afternoon call with them versus Olin failing the Saturday afternoon (laughs) test where you are dreading having... Maybe you're sending that one to voicemail, but Olin, Saturday afternoon test. Did I get that somewhat right? No, you, you got it exactly right, David. And the conclusion of that test is that if you're looking at potentially investing in a company and you're dreading picking up the phone, mm. uh, then how about not investing? Because that will stop <laughs> the phone from ringing. Um, you know, and I will tell you, David, I've had investors that we did not invest in that I love to talk to, continue to talk to. There have been some companies <laughs> with founders where I feel like I will pay to not have to talk to them again. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So so if we did not invest in you and you're listening to us right now, it doesn't mean we didn't think you were a great guy or gal. We, we, no. we probably did, no. but there are a lot of other considerations. But I love the Saturday afternoon test, Olin. It's a great reminder to really where we should be putting our money. And we're putting it behind the people more than anything else, probably at Series A. Although to Amit's point, certainly the total addressable market, that business opportunity you've been speaking of, Olin, is, is, is important as well. Well, I want to let you go. I want to thank you for four great answers to four great mailbag items. You did want to say something at the end, Olin, about the idea of one day might the Motley Fool fund at Series A, a company that ends up going public. And I mean, we would obviously disclose this. And if we ended up making it a rule, bre- a Motley Fool rule breaker service recommendation to Alpha and Omega complete the loop, that would be pretty awesome. Thoughts? And I think that that would be great, David. And in fact, within Motley Pool Ventures, we have a portfolio company, and this is all public information, of course, uh, called Affectiva. That was bought by a Swedish public company called SmartEye. Affectiva is in the emotion AI space, which is very cutting edge, helping uh, our computers and machines uh, work nicely with human beings. And SmartEye mm. is, is developing the technology along with their own and is using it in um, uh, autonomous vehicles and, and even uh, driverless vehicles to manage what's happening inside the car. Um, I have no um, insider knowledge about smart eyes uh, activities, but I would love for them to one day kind of be on the New York Stock Exchange. The venture fund continues to hold shares in that company. Okay. And um, it has the makings of a rule breaker. And you've mentioned it is a public company. Did you say it's in Sweden? It's a Swedish public company. It is S-E-Y-E. All right. Well, I don't pick stocks for Motley Fool Rule Breakers anymore, so I don't know whether they will go to Sweden for any future pick, but but that's pretty cool. And yeah, I can imagine if your smartphone is propped up on the dashboard of your car and starts noticing that you're going to sleep, it could be awfully helpful in that regard, because I'm sure that happens a fair amount out there, sadly, every day on the roadways. So Mm -hmm. I can see how Affectiva was of interest to SmartEye. And thank you very much for sharing that as well. So Olin, in conclusion... You've been very generous with your time, Olin. I'm curious, did, did you get any notes from your appearance on Rule Breaker Investing last week? 
Oh, David, I'm glad that you asked that. There was a question that I wished um, I would have been asked, but I didn't. So now I'm going to ask myself. Let's do it. I've done that on this podcast before. That's fun. And so here's a question from Olin to Olin. Hey, Olin, (laughs) can you tell us a David Gardner story? What? (laughs) Absolutely. I would love to tell David Gardner. Keep it short then. Keep it short. I would keep it short. So, okay, so I won't tell the story about David Gardner going hunting in uh, Oxford's in a button-down shirt, (laughs) 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 which is a true but weird story. (laughs) This is a story I will tell. It is is very old. How old is Rule Breakers, David? So Motley Fool Rule Breakers as an investment service started in October of 2004. Our book, Rule Breakers, Rule Makers, was 1998. The Rule Breaker portfolio back in the days on AOL, I mean, we really started that um, and rebranded it somewhere around 1996 or so. So, rule breaking has been going on for 20 plus. Right. So, around 2000, and that's, and that's an important uh, part of the story. So, around 2005, 2006, I remember in being in a board meeting and we were talking about the Rule Breaker service um, and whether you know we could really do one. And we had done it, you know, it was just the the future of it. And I remember at the time looking around the room and thinking that for all of us, including myself, rule breaker investing is almost indistinguishable from magic. You know, (laughs) (laughs) we can see the results, but no one really understood how you did it, David. And what I have seen uh, over the years is how you have kind of, in taking what you do in rule breaking, which is special and unique, and turned it from, you know, a mystery into an art and part science, and you've created a, a franchise. You've taught so many people how to do it. You you you've explained your 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 thought process. You've put structure around it, and you've gotten to the point where now there's a whole podcast, a whole universe of people who subscribe to rule breaking. Um, not as something that you know they they they, they worship, if you will, but something that they can practice themselves. Mm. And I just wanted to—I um, consider myself as one of those. And I just wanted to thank you for all the time and effort and energy that you've put into creating this great style of investing and just making it available to everyone. Well, thank you, Olin. I, I will say that this podcast has been a a great vehicle for that. I mean, I do feel as if I was writing about it. Back in 1998, in a book published by Simon and Schuster, so it's not that it was ever that obscure, I don't think. But I think something about being here every week and doing that for years and years, and answering questions and putting forward five stock samplers, I think it made it more real for maybe more people. And uh, and it's my delight to share it. I, I enjoy. I I think if the whole world we're rule breakers, it would be a better world. So I think uh, I'm, I'm delighted, Olin, to count you among our number. And I know that thinking is a lot of times infused, not just in you, but the other members of the team with whom we've worked over the years at Motley Fool Ventures. So it's very kind. And I appreciate you saying that. No, no, great, David. I think that as you think about that history, it's, it's as we all know, it's uh, to show someone is one thing to teach them is, is another level altogether. And I think that's kind of part of the transition, writing that book and actually teaching someone to do it without you. It's a whole different level of understanding. And uh, Thank you very much. Well, Olin, Mm -hmm. I say we call each other then Side Swamis this week. So thank you, Side Swami. All righty, Side Swami. Be easy.
Let's go to a story. Rule Breaker Mailbag item number five. Thank you for this lovely note, Sue Evers. Sue writes, Dear Dave and Tom, I currently live in San Francisco and I am 58 years old. I'm sending you both a heartfelt thank you for making it possible for me to retire well off at 65. If it weren't for you guys, this would never have happened. I grew up homeless as a child until I was 14 years old when I left the car. It was me and my brother and just my mother. Unfortunately, she had a gambling addiction and most of our social security check money was gone soon after receiving it, which would leave us hard up for the entire month. Mom would be left to shoplift and steal gas to get us through to the next month. I never remember much of an education or even being in school or graduating from high school, but yet I enrolled in a city college at the age of 22. I ended up going to the City College of San Francisco and studying photography. I would spend long hours in the darkroom on the weekends listening to NPR, and that's when I would listen to You Motley Fools in the 1990s. I believe the show was on Sundays around 1 o'clock, but I can't be positive about that. I listened to you both talk about Vanguard and index funds and about investing in what you know and love and maxing out a Roth. I supported myself through college working as a bartender and at 27 started to invest in the Vanguard 500 index fund and any extra money I put into VTSAX. Just check that. Yep, that's the ticker symbol for the Vanguard Total Market Index Fund, which owns even more than just the 500 in the S&P 500. It owns, quote, the whole market, the Vanguard Total Market Index Fund. Sue continues, photography ended up becoming a pretty great career for me. I loved what I did. I'm now a caregiver as well as an artist. I never really paid attention to my money's growth until recently. I never touched it and just kept adding to it no matter what. As long as the market doesn't do anything crazy, recently I realized I will retire at 65 a millionaire. I remember listening to you guys and fully trusting these two crazy brothers coming through my radio, and I'm so glad I did. I love you both, and I'm glad you two have each other and have also done so well. You are both a part of my morning gratitude meditation. Why aren't you guys teaching more a course on investing in junior and high school? Peace out. Sue Evers. Well, Sue, first of all, I wanted to share that note because it's just a reminder of what a motley world we live in. We're all from different walks of life. Even if you grew up in the same zip code as somebody, you might look completely different from them or at least act or think completely different from them. And one of the true joys I take in doing this podcast every week, but especially the mailbags, is being able to share a story like yours, which for me is just beautiful. It's so inspirational to think about the odds that were against you from the earliest days in your life and your childhood, which must have been so difficult, so much more difficult than mine, and I'm sure most of those who are listening to me, and to think that you made the best of it. You know, I've often used this analogy because, hey, I'm a gamer. Each of us has dealt a hand of cards, and they're all different, and some of them are easy to play, and some of them are hard, but the goal is to play the hand of cards you're dealt the best you possibly can. And Sue Evers, it seems to me you have done just that. To answer your question, uh, The Motley Fool has made inroads at different points into trying to get this material into classrooms. One thing we did is we wrote a book called The Motley Fool Investing Guide for Teens, which has a lot of five-star reviews on Amazon. It's a little dated these days, probably in need of a new edition, but I, I hope it still reads helpfully and somewhat freshly for teens of today. 
we have found it hard to figure out how to crack the school system. There are lots of different districts, lots of different states. So in the end, I think we've kind of relied on teachers. And that's not just formal professional teachers. Sometimes it's an aunt or an uncle or somebody who takes the time at a church group, somebody who takes the time to spread the word of long-term investing, the benefits of being a capital F fool. So I can't say we figured it out, Sue, but through the Motley Fool Foundation as well, I think we have better and better odds of reaching more and more people. And you know, I'm going to say these last three mailbag items, including yours, mention parents. And I want to say something about your mother. I, I'm sure she was in such a difficult position. And boy, gambling addiction on top of things really makes life incredibly difficult. But I hope that you have learned to appreciate what she did for you, trying to help you survive, even though she made so many mistakes along the way. Well, anyway, parents are a little bit the theme of the latter portion of this month's mailbag. And Sue, you just kicked it off with Rule Breaker Mailbag Item number 5. Thank you for sharing your story. All right, there are two more mailbag items this week, number six and number seven. And again, parents are the theme for the latter half of this podcast. And this is a hard one to read, but it's a beautiful note as well. And it's from a friend of mine. His name is Eric Eason. And Eric has volunteered and helped out around The Motley Fool. He's done some contracting with us. I once had him on a previous version of this podcast. You know, before the Rule Breaker Investing podcast launched in July of 2015, I did something called the Supernova podcast. Back when The Motley Fool had a service that I headed up called Motley Fool Supernova, I used to do a podcast for just those members joined by my friend and sidekick, Max Keeler of Investor Island fame. I enjoyed doing that podcast, although it was for a much smaller group of people, just the members of that service. So I'm delighted that Rule Breaker Investing today is free and can reach everybody. But back when I did that podcast, I had Eric on because he has a professional career in astrophysics, some flavor anyway of astronomy. Eric, I can't exactly remember your professional calling, but I remember this. You and I had a great conversation about our mutual high, high confidence that not only are human beings on planet Earth, not only probably not the only sentient species in the universe, but Eric, you and I talked back and forth with each other. The odds are that the universe is teeming with life in a way we couldn't possibly even comprehend. You think about just our one galaxy alone, the Milky Way, has somewhere between 100 billion and 400 billion stars. Yep, Sol, our sun, is one of the 100 billion at least stars in the Milky Way. A bunch of those have planets revolving around them as well. And then the Milky Way is just one of approximately 100 billion galaxies that we have identified thus far. So yeah, the odds that there's a heck of a lot of life out there, in my mind, extremely high. Anyway, let's leave deep outer space for now and get right back to your note, which is a really hard note to read, Eric, and a beautiful note. And I'm going to share it because I think it's going to make all of us better. You've entitled this note, Great Expectations Are a Cruel Mistress. Hi, David. I know I'm mixing metaphors with my letter's title, but the month of May was momentous to me and my family. For me, it began well with my second COVID vaccination, which enabled me to travel again, followed shortly by my 65th birthday and the initiation of Medicare, which appears to work well enough. My brother John, his wife, and I soon traveled to Montana to visit a friend of theirs to celebrate their joint birthdays born two hours apart. 
As COVID restrictions were to lift at my parents' retirement community, John and I also bought airfare to visit our folks in Austin in early June. And then the foreshadowing began. The first was on my birthday when I listened to a Practicing Human podcast by Corey Mascara, in which he read the brief poem, Otherwise, by Jane Kenyon. It begins with the stanza, and I quote, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It could have been otherwise. End quote. The poem continues with mundane moments in a typical day in which she realizes the profound gifts of what she has, for it could have been otherwise. I began doing so myself, acknowledging each morning my health and the health and love of my family members still living. Next came you speaking on your Rule Breakers podcast. You reiterated one of your quotes that happiness equals reality divided by expectations. That has long resonated with me, so I began to contemplate it anew. And then came the extra podcast to your A Road Less Traveled in 10 and a half chapters in which you encourage your listeners to lead a more interesting life. Well, since retiring, Eric writes, I have felt the same unease within me that I suspect you are increasingly feeling that that persistent question emerging from within, asking how I now wish to bring meaning and fulfillment to my life going forward. The last foreshadowing arrived in the last week of May as I watched episode eight of Disney's show, WandaVision. Now, I I suppose I have to insert here, there is a little bit of a spoiler here. So if you are in the middle of WandaVision and haven't reached episode eight or think one day you'd like to watch WandaVision, which is a very worthy Marvel show on the Disney Plus Network, hit skip forward about 60 seconds in this podcast. So spoiler alert, here we go. And by the way, I should mention, I'm in about episode five of WandaVision. So this is a spoiler for me, but I'm okay with it. Here we go. In a poignant scene in which Wanda is immersed deeply in grief, her husband Vision so gently says to her, what is grief but love persevering? That arrow found its mark, Eric writes, in my soul. I immediately paused the show to absorb and feel what he just said. We have all felt, or will feel in time, the grief of loss of a loved one. For me, it's been grandparents, aunts, uncles, many friends, and my sister. Each day thereafter became imbued, therefore, with these four foreshadowings. First, I awakened to good health and the good health of a loving family. It did not have to be so. Second, I strive to lower expectations to live a happier life. Third, I contemplate what it means to me to lead a more interesting life. And four, I recall past grief as love persevering. Well, three days later, I awoke to good health and to a text message that my healthy, vibrant, joyful, loving mom was dying and was to die within half an hour. I was in shock, barely able to pack my bags as John and I took the next plane to Austin. Upon our arrival after midnight, we found daddy in shock and heartbroken. So much so, that a week later, we took him to the emergency room for what the doctors diagnosed as, quotes, heartbreak syndrome that was affecting his heart. Everyone in their retirement community from friends, neighbors, and the staff were in shock as well as everyone expected her to outlive daddy and to easily live to 100. 
It was an expectation so implicit in our lives since daddy's heart attack when he was 42 and bypass surgery at 54 that none of us was aware that our beliefs were nothing more than an expectation of my parents and their best friends so close that they are aunt and uncle to me. They all understood that daddy would be the first to go. Well, he's now the last one. Three things have made losing mama in this way so very difficult. The first is that we were not afforded the chance to say goodbye. And with all that was going on in May, we hadn't spoken with her in a couple of weeks. Then there is the heartbreak that after 18 months of pandemic-induced separation, John and I were but 12 days from seeing her again. But the biggest contributor of all was the implicit expectation that since she was so healthy and vibrant, she would live to 100. Great expectations are a cruel mistress, David, as they are deeply ingrained to the point of being implicit in our worldview and yet have nothing to do with reality. Happiness is indeed reality divided by expectations. But after experiencing the month of May 2021 and its aftermath, I would like to offer an addendum. In closing, joy is the grace we bring to the outcome. Your friend, Eric Eason. And when I say your friend, I think he was writing that to me, but I think he's describing that to you as well, dear listener. Because we're all friends here and we learn from each other. And that is an absolutely heartbreaking note to read. And so much of me sees life as a glass half full. I think that's well documented. And I bet a lot of you who are listening to me feel the same way. And yet, it doesn't mean that every outcome is as we would wish it to be. And I really appreciate Eric's point about how sometimes implicitly in our minds, we make such assumptions about reality that they become real for us. And we couldn't imagine those assumptions not playing out. And yet when they don't, especially in an intimate context, that can be absolutely heartbreaking. So in addition to Eric's beautiful line at the end, joy is the grace we bring to the outcome, maybe conclude this. Let's you and I take nothing for granted. All right. Well, Rule Breaker Mailbag item number seven is coming up, continuing our parents' theme. But before I close with that, I do want to mention quickly that next month is Authors in August. And next week, we're going to be covering the book Positive Intelligence by Shirzad Shamin. Yep. Can't wait to have Shirzad back for a return appearance. We'll be talking about his book. And if you've not already read Positive Intelligence. You don't have to read it by next week, but I highly suggest you start it. I think you're going to benefit from it as I have. And week two of August, by the way, features another book that I think you will love and benefit from. And why wouldn't I tell you about it now so you can get started? It's called Do More Great Work by Michael Bungay Stanier. All right. And Rule Breaker Mailbag item number seven, continuing the theme of parents and making sure we appreciate them. And maybe this is on my mind today because my dad turned a new birthday this month and my mother's mother did, and they're both in their mid 80s. And so that's probably why this is on my mind more so than usual. And yet these are the notes that showed up in the mailbag. And I think that they're so worthy. And I love the thematic thrust that they have to them. So let's go to Miguel Garza to close out this week's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast. You'll see why this one follows in kind of a lovely way from Eric Eason's story that I just shared with you. Hi, David. 
My dad passed away on February 2020, just before the pandemic. He was a firm believer of investing in the stock market for better and extraordinary returns. Well, I'm a current fool, Motley Fool stock advisor, and I found the Motley Fool after my dad passed away because of the Rule Breaker Investing podcast. The fool philosophy reminds me so much of my dad that I quickly became interested and started to follow your principles, having also the fortune of having my dad teach me about stocks since I was a teenager as well. We both went to Wharton Business School for our MBA. And even though we have good knowledge about finance, the philosophy of saving, investing, and most importantly, waiting is not something that is learned in business school. Thank you so much for what you do. And I will leave you a small PowerPoint about how the Mexican stock market has also been doing great over the long term, or as my father calls it, quotes, the million dollar secret. Hope you have time to go over it. All the best, Miguel Garza. I'm so happy to hear of what your dad did for you. And like you, I also had a parent, in this case, my dad, who coached his kids about the stock market. And that coaching went on, as I said to dad on the phone once again this week for his birthday. That coaching, his coaching, is why The Motley Fool exists today. No Paul Gardner No Motley Fool. Tom and I have always known and appreciated that. And perhaps we can never really thank enough our parents. We heard a little while ago of a parent who stole for her children, which is truly desperate and sad. And yet at the heart of it, we can see something of love, love and survival. And your dad, Miguel, who raised you to learn what you couldn't have learned in business school, how to invest foolishly. And his spirit is implicit in many ways for you in this podcast. And so I hope I will continue to deliver for you. Thank you for writing in. I'm sure you sparked some interest among listeners in the long-term performance of the Mexican stock market, by the way. But more than anything, along with Eric Eason and Sue Evers, you're reminding us to make sure we appreciate. And, well, this is this week's eye-opener, fellow fools, to take care of these parents and to take nothing for granted. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.